Exodus chapter 20. We'll be looking at the first six verses this morning. Um, There is a very important principle that we're going to be learning about this evening, and that is very profound that obedience is good. (laughs) Obedience is good. Like That is no newsflash to any of us, I'm sure. But something that we may not think about as much as we should is how much of an impact as a parent our obedience or lack of obedience can have on your children or on the generations to come. There's a story that we're all familiar with that kind of shows how far the consequences of our sin can go. It's from 2 Samuel, beginning in chapter 11. It's about David, who rather than diligently going with his army to battle, stayed back to laze around on a rooftop. And there he saw a woman named Bathsheba bathing on her rooftop, and he took her to his bed, committing adultery. She became pregnant, and desperate to cover up his sin, David sent a message to the commander of his armies to have Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, killed in battle. With Uriah out of the way, David took Bathsheba as his wife. And then nine months later, David, thinking he was free from this, was confronted by a man named Nathan, who was a prophet, about his sin, upon which David confessed his sin. Second Samuel 12:13 says that David said, I have sinned against the Lord. And God was gracious to him. God forgave him. After his confession, Nathan said, The Lord has taken away your sin. You shall not die. But that's not the end of the story. Because even though David confessed, even though he was forgiven by the Lord, the echoes and the ripples of that sin lasted for generations. Because Nathan also said, he said, Now then, the sword shall never leave your house, because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. And of course, that proved true. As a direct result of the sin, turmoil and death followed David's house. The child that Bathsheba was carrying died in childbirth. Tamar, David's daughter, was raped by his son, by her own half-brother, Amnon. Tamar's brother, Absalom, avenged Tamar, murdering his brother, Amnon. And then Absalom, David's own son, left Jerusalem, gathered an army, and marched back to Jerusalem to overtake his father, kill him, and become the king over Israel forcing David to flee Jerusalem. All of that destruction and death and heartache because of David's sin. But it didn't stop there. The ripples continued to grow as time stretched on because the sword would never depart from his house. David's son Solomon, his heart would be divided. Rather than being a man after God's own heart like David was, he gave himself later in his life to idolatry. And this led to a divided kingdom The kingdom of Israel split in southern and northern kingdoms and then king after king after in every, in both of those countries gave themselves to idolatry until they were finally judged by the Assyrians and the Babylonians who came through with a wave of destruction taking them into exile. And listen to the account of the final king, the last in David's line as king of Jerusalem. This is in 587 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar returned to Jerusalem one last time, the final stage of the three parts of the exile, and King Zedekiah attempted to flee that final siege. He was captured and taken prisoner. 
He saw his sons slaughtered before his eyes, and his own eyes were burned out with red-hot irons, and he was taken away in chains to prison and exile. That ended David's house on the throne of Jerusalem until the coming of Christ 600 years later. Sin has lasting consequences. Now that is a rather dramatic example. I'm not suggesting that a, a word spoken in anger to your wife will cause the plucking out of your great-grandchildren's eyes or anything like that. David was the king of a nation and the consequences were magnified. But there are natural consequences to disobedience. An errant sinful word is one thing, but a consistent, biting, angry tongue year after year affects your wife and it affects your children, who in turn will speak to their kids that way and so on down the line it goes. So parents, obedience is important. It's important to train your children to obey, but take heed to yourselves. Sins committed by parents can have lasting consequences felt for generations to come. So the stakes couldn't be higher. That takes us to our text this evening in Exodus chapter 20. Follow along with me. We'll be reading the first six verses. It says, Then God spoke all of these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. So here in, in Exodus 20, the Exodus has just occurred. God has led this group of Israelites, his chosen people, out of Egypt, out of a land of slavery and idolatry to the foot of Mount Sinai. He has led them there to, and save them to be obedient, to bring him glory, to be set apart as worshipers of the one true God so that all the nations around would glorify God and worship Yahweh when they saw the blessings heaped upon this nation. But they had to have been asking, how? How are we, this newly redeemed people, a group of people that had known only idolatry in Egypt for 400 years, how are we to live in a way that glorifies God. In its infancy, this new nation desperately needed to know how to live a life that glorifies God. So God gave the Israelites the Ten Commandments to obey to do just that. Statutes to instruct them how to live a life that honored God, how to live a life of the redeemed. And this instructs us today. I mean, you are here at Foundations, partly for the food, partly for the fellowship, partly for the free babysitting, but hopefully you're here because you have a desire to glorify God in your homes, to have homes that obey his word, and to not just keep your head above water for the next five or ten years, or 18 years until your kids are out of the house, but to have Christ-exalting families that thrive in the joy of the Lord for generations. But if you're like me, if you're like the Israelites at Mount Sinai, sometimes it's, it's hard to know how best to do that. Well, in Exodus 20, verses 1 to 6, God gives three proclamations declaring who he is, what he has done, 
and what he demands of us so that we can nurture God-glorifying homes that endure for generations to come. And he begins his proclamation with the most foundational of truths in verses 1 and 2, and that is who it is that we obey, who we obey. Verses 1 and 2 serve as a, a preamble or a prologue to the Ten Commandments. Before giving the law, he wants these Israelites to remember who he is, who they were, and what he has done for them. It says verse 1 and 2, Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So number one is who God is. This is Yahweh. This is the great I am, the sovereign God of all creation. This is the covenant-keeping God who bound himself to Abraham and his descendants. Notice he also says that I am your God. This is a singular, not a plural. He is claiming to be the God of each and every individual person there, knowing them intimately, knowing them personally. Notice that God spoke these commands to all of Israel. We know from Exodus 19.16 and 20.18 that when he spoke these audible words, they were accompanied by a thick cloud and lightning, thunder, and the sound of a very loud trumpet growing louder and louder. There was no doubt who was speaking. This was Yahweh. These commands were given to the Israelites audibly. They didn't have the privilege that you and I have. They didn't have the written word, but we do. We know who God is. We know who to obey because he tells us in his word. He tells us in the Bible. And there is no doubt about who speaks to us through his word. 2 Timothy 3.16 teaches that all scripture is the product of God's breath. The very product of his breath and used for teaching and training and reproof and correction to instruct in obedience. As a product of God's breath, the Bible is his very thoughts on paper. The Bible is his revelation to mankind. And far from being mere words of men, Hebrews 4.12 says that these are the words of God. The Bible is the word of God. It is living and active. It discerns the soul and the spirit and the intentions of the heart. So he explains to the Israelites who he is. He is Yahweh, the great I am. He also explained, secondly, who they were. These men and women were brought out of a house of slavery. They were helpless slaves in Egypt. They were unable to rescue themselves from the most powerful nation on earth. They required a savior. And thirdly, he also explained what he had done for them, what God had done for them, and that is he had delivered them from the hands of the Egyptians. He had rescued them. He had saved them. Now, hopefully many in this room have also been redeemed by this same God. You have recognized that you were under bondage and slavery to a vicious and cruel master, sin, that leads to death everlasting in hell, that you were unable to remove the sin on your own, that you needed a savior, you needed a redeemer, someone to bring you out of bondage. You needed a savior. You were then uh, informed that there is only one way to have your sins forgiven, and that is through Christ. There is only one deliverer of mankind, and that is through the Son of God, repenting of your sins and turning to Christ. And just as Yahweh freed and delivered the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, 
he has provided the Son to free and deliver us from a much more powerful opponent, sin and death. And having believed, you were brought into his kingdom. You were led into his household and you've been born again. And if that's not true for you, then you must repent of your sins and you must trust the Savior. Put your faith in Christ. So before God tells them how to obey, he tells them who to obey. God reminded the Israelites that he is a deliverer, that they were in bondage, and now they are saved. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And parents, we are required to obey this same God. So remind yourselves daily who God is and what he has done for you. Remind yourself of who you were before he rescued you from your sin. And then your obedience will flow out of a thankful heart for what he's done for you. Romans 6, 17 and 18 says, But thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. And never forget that you have been delivered from sin through Christ by a loving God. And when you call your children to obey the word of God, it helps if over the last months and years you have magnified the glory of God, the wonders of God of the Bible. So exalt him in your conversations. Make him precious in your homes. Remind them of who God is, what he's done for them, and then call them to obey his word. So if we want to have God glorifying Christ-exalting homes for generations to come, we begin by understanding who we obey. Now after proclaiming who we obey, next he begins to explain how we obey. He gives the Ten Commandments, and we are briefly going to look at the first two. The first step in the how-to is to worship the right God in the right way. Worship the right God in the right way. Verses 3 through 5 say, says, You shall have no other gods before me. That's the first commandment. The second commandment says, You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. So the word before in verse 3 doesn't mean first in line. It's not as if God is okay to be number one in a long line of trinkets and gadgets and relationships that also have a piece of your worship. But rather it means before me or in my face or in his presence or in front of him because God is omnipresent. He is everywhere at all times. The things that we are prone to worship with our time and our energy and our affection are done right in front of him in his presence. Specifically, it says here that you are not to make or create or fashion an idol out of anything on the earth, above the earth, or under the earth. Because an idol can come from anything and anywhere. And it's all forbidden. Now, none of us, hopefully none of us, are worshiping a carved image. It's not something that we do in our culture. A lot of cultures around the world still do that. Um, but we don't bow down to a statue. But this plays out differently for us because there's things that steal our heart and steal our affections and our hearts bow down to them. And we are not to serve or to worship them. To worship means to bow down in love and devotion. To serve means to work for or do someone's will. So when something becomes an idol in your heart 
or becomes an idol in your home, you work towards getting it. You work towards feeding its will. And in place of a golden calf, we, we are prone to worship the God of self, the God of pride, the God of stuff, more and more bigger and better material things to feed our ego. And this is a trap. It takes our eyes off of God and onto ourselves. We attach ourselves and addict ourselves to our phones and on our entertainment and our social media, and that does not go unnoticed by your children when we're constantly looking at a screen as we're worshiping the altar of me and my entertainment. To find out if this is a problem for you, ask yourself what you do if you don't get it. Whatever it is, it could be comfort, could be respect, could be money, intimacy, peace in the home, whatever it is. If you don't get that desire fulfilled, what do you do? Do you lash out sinfully? Do you manipulate to get it? If so, that's a red flag. But if nothing but God is what we worship, then when our desires are unfulfilled, it's not a crushing loss of an idol that has a piece of our heart. You can take things in stride, be, in, in stride because your affections belong to God and he never changes. It's not easy though. In fact, John Calvin famously said that our hum, the human heart is an idol factory. And if we're not careful, the factory of our heart works overtime to create the things that steal our affections. And these are not just sinful things. Hobbies, work, good things can supplant God and become all important to us. If we're not careful, our children themselves can become the most important things in our lives and become little deities that we worship, worrying and fussing and stressing about every little detail. You find yourself talking and thinking about them all the time. But we need to turn our worship and our service back to Christ. How do we do that? Well, Colossians 3, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, if you have been raised with Christ, if you have been born again, if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, it says, keep seeking the things that are above, where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earth. So we set our mind, our will, our devotion daily on Christ. Spend time with him through his word. Ask him to help us remove and destroy the idols of our heart. Tear them down, starve them out, and love God alone. This command to worship the one and only God would have set these Israelites apart from every other nation around. Every other nation worshipped multiple gods. The Israelites, God's chosen people, were to be different. They were going to worship one God. And today, in a world that worships everything but God, worships everything but Yahweh, in a world that gives their love and devotion to everything but Christ, your homes are to be different and unique. You are to have nothing else before God. Your love belongs to him. In a world growing in hostility towards God, you and your family are called to love the God of the Bible with all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your mind. This is not a half-hearted worship. It's not a worship divided between God and anything else. It is a, a whole devotion to him. So let me ask you, is this how your children would describe you? If they were asked, what matters most to your dad, would they say, my dad loves Jesus. That's what's most important to him. What about your coworkers and your neighbors? 
Well, we need to obey him and have no other gods before him, nothing else dividing our heart. So we have been reminded of who we obey. We've been reminded how we obey. And now the rest of verse 5 and 6, we have the reason we obey. Now the Bible throughout gives a myriad of reasons why we obey him. Some of those, most importantly, is that we love him. We obey him because we love him. And it flows naturally out of our new heart. The Bible also says that we obey him for his name's sake. We have a desire that God's name be glorified. And so we obey him and live a life that reflects who we are in Christ. We also obey for the, because we fear God. 1 Peter 1, 18 says, Conduct yourself throughout the time of your stay here, throughout your time of your stay on earth, in fear, obeying because you have an, a reverent awe for the God of all creation. Conduct yourself throughout the time of your stay here in fear. So we obey God because we fear him. But specifically here, we obey Because verse 5 says that God is a jealous God. The reason that we obey is because God is a jealous God. He said, you shall not worship or serve them because I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And then there is a clear message of what happens if we obey his commandments and what happens if we disobey his commandments. Because the things that we are prone to worship with our time and our energy and affection are done right in front of God. And it is an affront to him. It's before his face. And he is jealous. and He will not abide it. Jealousy is an often overlooked attribute of Yahweh. But God is a jealous God. And when jealousy is described of God, it's an attribute that demands exclusive devotion. But idolatry robs God of that devotion that only he deserves. And it is spiritual adultery. And he burns with wrath. Listen to Deuteronomy 4. Verses 23 and 25, it said, Moses says, So watch out, take heed, he says, of yourself, that you do not forget the covenant of the Lord your God which he made with you, and make for yourselves a graven image in the form of anything against which the Lord your God has commanded you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. When you become the father of children and children's children and have remained long in the land and act corruptly, and make an idol in the form of anything, and do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord, your God, this will provoke him to anger. So my friends, our homes must exalt God and him alone and obey the totality of his word. So talk about the greatness of God. Give him glory. Devote yourself in prayer to him as a family. Never lead your kids to think that something insignificant Anything trifle has your affections in place of him because doing so provokes the God of all creation to anger. In fact, continuing verse 5, he says that those who practice idolatry, those who, ob- who disobey him, hate him. And that brings us to a sobering warning, warning about the generations to come. He says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me. So this is not teaching that your children will be punished for your sins, just like it's not teaching that you will be punished for your father's sins. Moses makes that clear in Deuteronomy twenty-four sixteen. Ezekiel eighteen twenty 
says this. He says, the person who sins will die. The, per, uh, the son will not bear the punishment of the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment of the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be on himself. The wickedness of the wicked will be on himself. So each person is re- responsible for their sin before God and will be judged accordingly. However, the natural consequences of sin can last for generations. The consequence of our disobedience matters. Just as one traitor can endanger an entire army and in turn endanger an entire country, one unrighteous parent can pile up troubles for the next generation to struggle through, to wade through. Because children learn to have, handle life through watching their parents. When children observe mom and dad finding fulfillment in something other than God, they're going to follow that pattern. When a home is filled with sarcasm and argument, then children will follow that pattern. When children watch their parents spend their time and their money and their energy on worldly pursuits, guess what? They're naturally going to copy those values and they will raise their children to do the same. Now we see in verses 5 a verb to keep. This means to do something carefully or to obey. And here, obeying and disobeying are equated with hating and loving God. To love God is to obey him. To disobey him is to hate him. Now I'm sure, pretty sure, that none of us here would think of ourselves as haters of God. But that is what the disobedient are called. So if your home is an environment where God is not honored, His word is not obeyed. Idols of the heart run amok. That's not only a breach of the law, but God looks upon you as haters of him. To obey, however, is to love God. Jesus said in John 15.10, he said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 2.3-5 says, By this we know that we have come to know him. And to know there means an intimate, loving relationship, a personal knowledge of you. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth of God is not in him. So the obedient love God, the disobedient hate him. And that's a very sobering thought to think about. It's even more sobering when you realize that the opposite of love in the Old Testament is not only hate, but it's also apathy. For example, an atheistic home where religion is humanism, the glorification of man. God is not spoken about except in derision, certainly not glorified. The gospel is certainly not preached. The children will suffer greatly from that, the echoes of which can be heard to their children's children because their children were trained to hate God through malice and disobedience. But it's also true of a culturally Christian home where God is verbally acknowledged from time to time, largely ignored, though, in actions. Church is occasionally attended as as long as no other idol gets in the way. Nothing more important gets in the way of church. The gospel is explained but not really lived out in life. There's really no attention given to actually doing what the Bible says. The echoes of that can be heard for generations as well. Children trained to hate God through apathy and disobedience. So heed the warning. Your disobedience affects you It affects your children, and it affects your family for generations to come. However, that's not where we end. 
Following this sobering warning, God ends the command with a wonderful promise. A wonderful promise. God says in verse 6, he says, But showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. God says that he will show his steadfast, unmoving, unwavering love to thousands. The word means innumerable, an untold multitude to those who love him and keep his commandments, those who obey his word and submit to the gospel. The most precious, priceless treasure that you can leave for your children is to obey the gospel and live it out daily in your homes. 1 John 2:23 says, This is his commandment. This is the commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Do you love one another in your homes? Is your home a place where love rules, where you love God and love one another? We talked about the potential consequence of a father who is characterized by a biting, angry, impatient tongue. But the opposite is true as well, because there is great impact that a loving, kind father who suffers long and answers kindly, who does not return evil for evil and speaks with gentleness, that family will also have lasting influence. He will have a lasting influence on his family. The wrath threatened on those who disobey stretched to the third and fourth generations. The mercies and his loving kindness could extend far, far beyond that. There is great Joy that comes from loving God through obedience to his word. And this is how we have Christ-exalting families that thrive in the joy of the Lord for generations to come. So rehearse who God is in your home and proclaim what he has done for you through the gospel. Open your Bibles together and learn how to better obey him. Make it a point to tear down the idols of your heart and set your affections on him. Because if if God is known in your home, if he is honored and worshiped in your family, if the gospel is preached and modeled by you parents, if you as parents walk in obedience and walk in the spirit, you are quick to confess your sins and extend forgiveness to one another. If you love God and you obey his word, that obedience and love that extends from God as a result of that will last to untold multitudes and endure for generations to come. Let's pray. Lord, we do praise you. We thank you. Lord, we praise you that you are the great I am. You are the God of all creation. You are the God who has rescued us from our sin. Lord, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us through your word. You have revealed yourself to us through your son who came to die for us. Lord, we thank you for providing a way for us to be forgiven. Lord, I ask that you would forgive us for our duplicity, for giving our attentions to the things of this world. Lord, I pray that you would help us to honor you, to love you, to obey you. You would help us to, to tear down the idols that we have allowed to flourish in our hearts so that we can love you and you alone. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to have the blessing that comes from a life and a family that obeys you. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this evening. In Jesus' name, 
Amen.